5: Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, Fong, our producer, is in studio. I cannot believe it. It is Monday, but Monday of the last... Is it the last week of January already? Yeah. Wow. 2016 has just kind of, I guess, yeah, it has taken a... has started with a storm. I mean, well, I mean, I guess literally here in California... Uh, it's been raining a little bit, so that's good. Some say that uh, this really could help with our drought issue. Yeah, they said that it could help, but then it's still, you know, for for a while. But still, it doesn't really take away from the drought and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but let's we still need, need more rain, rain. More. right? Yeah. Right. We need more rain. Uh, did you have a good weekend, Fong? Um, I was really productive doing a lot of, you know, the boring work. Mm -hmm. People would say, you know, studying, doing some work, catching up a little. Um, Spending time with friends, yeah. Well, uh, if you notice, you've been tuning in to Progressive Voices. I've I've been somewhat missing as in uh, producing new interviews. And the reason uh, reason behind that is the fact that my aunt passed away. And so it was a big deal for my family and I uh, because she was the only... Uh, sibling of my father who passed away when I was young. And so Mm -hmm. she kind of was the only, you know, connection, the bridge to, to my father who um, we didn't have any memories of, right. We were just too young. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I've been gone in the last two weeks in and my family are Buddhists. um, And, you know, they believe in this process of traditions. And so I became a Buddhist white nun uh, to help, uh, you know, transition my aunt's uh, spirit <laughs> into their next life. I know that sounds really different if you're not a Buddhist, uh, but, you know, I I kind of went through this period. It was very difficult, and all the people in my aunt's life came together, and, and my aunt immigrated here, you know, stayed in a refugee camp in Thailand for a couple of years before she was able to get here. And so a lot of these people exist in their communities uh, without really recognizing or, or acclimating to modern American society and life. So being gay is very modern to them. Like very, this is new, uh, but being out and gay and out and gay with rights. It's different, you know, in Thailand and being gay uh, and, and, and being categorized, you know, mm-hmm. differently. But wow. to be to be a female, to be gay... To be non-conforming, to be educated, and outspoken—those are really bad things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I kind of had to endure that, become the nun, and then you know step outside of my comfort zone in how I dress and how I present to get into these garments, uh, this custom robe thing, mm-hmm. you know, that was more feminine than I really wanted to present myself, but I did it for my aunt. Um, mm-hmm. So it's always interesting, you know, when you're the queer person. Uh, and you go back to these places where your family is, and you do things for your family because you love them, but Mm -hmm. you kind of exist outside of uh, who you are. Wow. (laughs) That's that's a lot for a Monday. (laughs) It is a lot. Uh, But thank you, and I'm back, and uh, I'm very excited for our guest today, who has a new book in which I think he will be able to talk a whole lot about existing outside of your identity, and, and, and coping and coming of age uh, with uh, difficulties, when especially when, when dealt with your own family. And so let's get today's program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Our guest today is the author of Soul Serenade, Rhythm, Blues, and Coming of Age Through Vinyl. He's Rashad Allison, an award-winning pop music critic and culture journalist. And in this book, he talks about how music helped him through his uh, coming of age or his formative years and growing up in central Arkansas in the 80s and 90s. Rashad, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me here.
5: Yes, we're very excited to have you, and I, you know, thank you so much for the book. By the way, um, I, I wanted to I, let's let's jump into the book. I mean, it, you know, it obviously starts um, in starts off by talking about your parents and mm-hmm. kind of um, you know your mom and dad and your relationship uh, as a as a young kid and how you saw their relationship play out and how that impacted you, right?
3: Right, right.
0: And so the first part gives. Mm-hmm. It's something of like a, um, I think one review, the Kirkus review, called it like a Greek tragedy, which I thought was kind of perceptive um, because I thought of it that way too with the brief part of the book. But it sets up, you know, these people who played such a, um, a fundamental role in my life. The first people I knew, my parents, grandparents. And um, it also sets up for the reader um, just the patterns of dysfunction and trauma that were um, part of the family before, long before I was born and um and then, of course, as you read the book, you'll see that especially particularly with my parents coming from uh traumatic childhood, not that it gives you know, people excuse, but you just I think it gives the reader um an understanding of how they what they had to <laughs> fight against, what they were up against and and what they were filtering things through
3: mm-hmm.
0: um these experiences and so um i I thought that that made sense to have that part of the book first before you met me.
5: Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and and it kind of also is a, a great introduction to, you know, your your love for music. I mean, the fact that
3: mm-hmm.
5: in setting up the uh, the dysfunction in your family, the relationship, I mean, you go right into it, that your dad went to Vietnam when he came back. Um, he fought, you know, for the, the war in Vietnam. And when he came back, it was just very, very dark and very different. Uh, mm-hmm. after. But he is the reason or part of the reason in in terms of how you fell in love with music, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. He pretty much fostered that. Um, I remember, I mean, as early as kindergarten, because my parents divorced when uh, I was sick. But I have vivid memories of, uh, of us going after school on Fridays to this used record shop that was in downtown Hot Springs where we were living at the time. And, you know, at this time, this is like 82, 83, So people like Michael Jackson and Pat Benatar and Vanity Six. These are huge stars on all, all on you know MTV and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and he just was like, no, this is music you should listen to. So he was picking these used copies of Staple Singers and Gladys Knight and BB King and Aretha Franklin and all this old. I mean, at that time, those records are almost twenty years old then. And you know, I'm just a kid. He was like, oh, no, this is music you should listen to. So it was this informal tutorial. On soul music, and I remember watching how he and my mother and neighbors, when you know my parents would have car parties and and relatives, how they responded to music. the music was just constant. It was like another character, another relative in the family, and people responded to this music in such a visceral way. And it, it was not only escape and solace, but I think that those lyrics and those songs spoke to their existence, you know, their aspirations, where they were, where they wanted to be, and I, I could absorb that as a kid, and, and and then of course when my parents divorced, and my dad left, he left behind me. These, he bequeathed me these records, and I was, but listened to them to you know still connected to him. But ended up finding who I wanted to be in that in those songs, mm-hmm. and 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 so much, and not so much then the lyrics, but the what was conveyed in how Gladys Knight sang or Shaka Khan sang or Reza or David Ruff, and it was this a uh, mix of of Resilience and vulnerability, and although at the time, of course, I'm not understanding the lyrics, but I could absolutely understand that these were they were singing with such conviction, you know, with such strength, and I want I wanted to embody that somehow.
5: It was kind of hard to decipher whether you were Mama's boy or uh, you know Daddy's boy. I mean, I kind of feel mm-hmm. like you you wanted a relationship with both very bad, no matter um, you know the mistakes that they made. I mean, even. Witnessing your father physically abusing your mo- your mother and her fighting back. I, I mean, you insert you know how you feel about that and music uh, as well. You describe that in the book.
0: Yeah, you know it was. Um, you know, I thought it was so fitting when um, Beak and my publisher uh, decided to go ahead and put that picture because I start the book talking about that honeymoon. Out of my parents, they were so beautiful and so happy. And I don't, you know, I I don't remember that image at all. Well, I wasn't born, of course, when that image was taken, but I don't remember seeing that type of happiness. But um I was in love with them both. You know, I I it was some children have that that they just fall in love with their parents in a way that of course has nothing to do with sensuality or anything, but these they were they were both strong personalities, um and they were um I just I don't know. but I I even at the time I'm you know, I'm saying my mother my father abused my mother and she fought back. I mean, you know, she wasn't a shrinking violet at all. Mm-hmm. But um I I admired the strength in both of them. And both of them were different. You know, my mother was more much more I guess, you know, if we're using patriarchal terms, she was much more of the patriarch in the family that, you know, she was very much the disciplinarian and she, you know, enforced the structure. She wasn't very emotionally available where my father who was, um you know, couldn't, you couldn't rely on him for anything, but he was very emotionally available, affectionate, and very um, attuned to, you know, my feelings and my moods as they changed. And, you know, and, um, you know, he would, most of the times it was like giving me candy and stuff like that, or just taking me away from the house when it looked like I was, you know, feeling a little down. But, I mean, he was very open with hugs and kisses and all of that thing, and all those sort of things, which is very validating for a child, particularly a male child, to have that from his father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I loved them both and I had problems with both of them. I, there was a point when I, re- of course, resented my father and resented my mother too, because, you know, her way of raising up was so domineering and so oppressive. Um, and you know, but it, I, I think within writing this book, I was able to understand them as not just mom and daddy, but as a woman and as a man and, you know, writing them gave me that objectivity to look at them and understand, you know, why they made some of the decisions they did. And of course, it doesn't absolve them from some things that they did that were just, you know, with the consequences, which are terrible. But I understood them better as human beings. And so it, it made me Respect them and and love them more without all the sentimentality attached.
5: You know, I, I mean, I bring that up because, uh, again, like the book does a great job illustrating the identities, um, and I, you know, it's plural identities uh, that that you talk about growing up, in um, and, and your connection with music to it. So it doesn't matter if it was like a really bad situation, you know, you always remembered a song or, or something playing in the background or how your mom coped with the, the sadness or what was going on with her life to, to the extreme where, you know, your dad taking you to see his mistress and, and <laughs> you remembering, you know, even music with, with, with that. I wanted to, to ask you a question very specific to growing up in rural Arkansas, the, uh, you know, housing project of, of hot springs in being, you know, uh, living living in that area, also being black, and then um, I don't know if at the time you're aware that, y- you know, you're also gay.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, my awareness of that was very early. I remember in maybe the second grade having a crush on a little boy in class, not understanding what that was, but um, I knew that it was different. You know, I I could tell that. And I think most kids would know that. But there wasn't anything in me that thought it was wrong, per se, but I just knew it was different. And I thought, oh, maybe this was something that kind of come and go, you know. And by the time I was maybe 13 or 14, I knew it wasn't going anywhere, that this was what it was. But um, at the same time, at that time, I was very isolated. And the people in in my neighborhood were – you know, it, they were, I guess, what folks would call the managed boys. These were little boys who were affecting, you know, grown men's, um, you know, mannerisms and trying to be, you know, older than they were, or they were thugs and everything. I wasn't necessarily an effeminate boy, but I was, you know, quiet and to myself and very bookish, which people automatically assumed was gay. You know, if you weren't this sort of hard knock thug little boy, then people, <laughs> you know, you were gay. Mm-hmm. Um and and of course I was teased and relentlessly not only at school but at home, and you know and I was like well I am I think you know and, and I did and, but there was something in me that didn't see anything necessarily wrong with that. By the time I got to like fifteen, I was working and I was working in the library, and you know my thing was to look up information I needed to know. I'm sure the way it was like me becoming a journalist was just. Second nature, because, you know, whatever I need to know, I'm like, there has to be a book somewhere about this, you know. And I looked it up because there was, you know, I was looking up stuff about sexual health. And I remember reading the Joy of Gay Sex. And there was an anthology by Joseph Bean um, in the life uh, that collected a lot of poems and and essays that have been published. I mean, articles published by black um, queer men. um, And like in 1986, I think that's when it came out. And, um, you know, I was reading that stuff and, and listening to music and all that. I was trying to figure out who I could be because I knew that what was in my community, the men who were there, I I was not going to be bad, you know? Um, so it was a lot of that spent my adolescence trying to figure, as most of us do, trying to figure out who we are. But for me, because I felt so isolated, there wasn't any, you know, sexual experimentation or anybody exploring me. Thank God for that. But it was, but it still was a very lonely exploration
5: hmm well, What kind you know. of music do you remember, you know, or or what artists spe- specifically as a uh, as a gay young man um, would you say you identified with during that time?
3: Uh,
0: you know, I was still listening to, I mean, at that time, this was like the earliest mid-90s, so people on the, this was when we were at the height of grunge and, Gangster rap and the rise of Mary J. Blige and, and stuff like that. So, are you um, gonna uh, say?
5: Are you gonna say, Dr. Dre?
0: <laughs> Dr. Dre, you know, yeah, because he come out with the Chronic, and that <laughs> that record was so ubiquitous. Um, yeah. In fact, you know, that album, you know, when I was growing up in Little Rock at that time, the um, gang violence was so out of control that HBO came down and and shot one of the first documentaries banging in Little Rock, and Dr. Dre's album. That doc- that documentary came out in ninety four. Dr. Dre's record dropped in '93, and that album was like the soundtrack of that uh, documentary. It was, you know, ubiquitous throughout, which made sense because everywhere you turned, that record was on. And so, what was happening for me was that, you know, I'd grown up with these, um, you know, soul records that express love and tenderness with this a mix of toughness and vulnerability. And then, what was going on with the music that my peers were listening to? It was very much a hardening of those R&B um, sentiments. Um, Mary J. was was a, was a pinnacle because she combined some, some the sensitivity of, of old school R&B of course with the toughness and brashness of hip hop but um, I didn't find a home in that music you know I, I understood it I understood the angst and I understood the drive of it some of it I would you know part it to with friends and, and my sisters but you know it wasn't a music that I could retreat into mm-hmm. and, and feel as though people understood so the music I was listening to at that time that I retreated into and sort of helped me sort of define myself sexually was a lot of old school stuff. So around this time, I remember discovering many Ripperton actually, um, her song inside my love, I fell in love too. And actually there is a part in the book. Um, the first time I heard that song, I was, you know, had a crush on my friend and, um, you know, I don't want to you know, spill on the show what I was doing when that song was happening to on, <laughs> But, um, there was something about the way that that song expressed sensuality of this oneness of the spirit and the carnal urges. And I had this very romantic view of, of sex and love um, based on those types of songs, like Inside My Love and music of Leon mm-hmm. Ware and uh, Marvin Gaye and all of those beautiful, tender, vulnerable love songs, Al Green. And I wanted whatever love and whatever sex was supposed to be, I wanted it to feel like that. You
3: know, I love um, it. Right.
5: Um, <laughs> uh, um, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I want to talk uh, a whole lot more about your book, Soul Serenade, Rhythm Blues, and Coming of Age Through Vinyl. So stick around with us. I uh, sure. The Michelle Meow Show continues with Rashad Allison. Right after this, don't go away.
1: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
5: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Monday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest today is Rashad Allison, who has a new book out called Soul Serenade Rhythm, Blues, and Coming of Age uh, Through Vinyl. Rashad is an award winning pop music critic and culture journalist. Rashad, I, I asked you right before the break in terms of music you identified with, uh, you know, c- the coming of age process and pro- probably coming out to yourself as gay, um, you know, but I, I also want to talk about what a lot of people are talking about in this country, which, you know, the racial issues, especially um, you know, being black, uh, being, you know, coming from oppressed communities and and there's a lot of that dialogue happening and going on. And I don't, you know, as you're writing this book and telling of your own experiences, how, besides music, how did you cope growing up with a single mother, growing up poor, growing up black?
0: You know, it was, um. what's interesting is that when we were coming up, um, we, I didn't know we were poor because everyone around us lived like we live. And it wasn't, um. my mother, when I was, Writing the book, I realized how resourceful she was. We lived in the project and the projects that we lived in—you know—when people think of the projects, they're thinking, you know, graffiti on the wall, you know, um, it's it's dirty, it's, it's nasty, it's crime. That that was not the projects we moved into in Hot Springs, and they're still not like that. And when I wrote the book, I went back to Hot Springs and to um, and to Little Rock. I live in Virginia Beach now, and I went through all those neighborhoods to make notes. Of things, and it was um interesting when I went back to the projects. I hadn't been there in 30 years, and they looked the same. It was like the twilight zone or something. Nothing had changed about those buildings, but it changed. Those, the community is is um, Hispanic now, but um, those projects when they were built, uh, that was in Hot Springs. I, I think they were built maybe sometime in the 60s. We, were, of course, moved there in the 80s, um, but. There was one side of town that was the colored projects and the other that was the white projects. But by the time we moved there in the 80s, they were all, you know, integrated and were mostly blacks.
3: Mm-hmm. And
0: so, but people still refer to them as white and colored. And, you know, and I'm six years old when we, when we moved there and I was so confused because he was like, oh, we moved to the colors project. And I was thinking the buildings would be multicolored, like crayons in my box. <laughs> and they weren't. They were great. I'm like, "What is the colored project? <sighs> So you know, it wasn't two years later that I understood what that meant. Like, oh, okay. But you know, even then, as I said, like both the white projects and the color projects, were all black at that time. But they were also filled with um, a lot of retired people um, who lived on fixed incomes, a lot of um, older women, and yeah, mostly older women. And they t- kept a tight ship on the on that project. They were always clean. You know, if you were eating the popsicle out in the summertime, you better not drop the popsicle stick or Ms. Wells would see you from her kitchen window until you take that popsicle stick up. So, I grew up around people who were very proud of where they were. So, um, and then when we left the project and we moved around a lot, Mama um, always moved us into nicer neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, so we didn't look for although we were. I mean, you know, lives would be out in this nice house we were living in because Mama had, to, of course, these middle-class aspirations, but she also wanted to keep us safe. I mean, and I'm thinking about it because this is something she couldn't do now, given how people, you know, run credit checks, checks and all of that. But um, we were always moving because she was always – we couldn't afford these places in the beginning, so we were only going to stay for so long. But it did have an effect on me in that um You know, the instability, especially as a kid, was just too much. And it was stressful. And um, it caused a lot of depression. And so it just made me more adamant when I became an adult that when I go somewhere, you know, my bills are (laughs) paid. You know, I can support myself. All that instability stuff we had growing up, I I knew I was not going to have that as an adult. I just couldn't take it because, I mean, there was a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of just fretting you know, about where we're going to go
5: next. I know, know exactly so exactly what you mean, uh, having lived a, a life like that, you know, young and also with a single mother. So it sounds like the most consistent or constant thing in your life in growing up was music or vinyl.
0: It absolutely was. I, always, I remember when we would move, I would, um, you know, pack my records first, you know, and it was a constant for me. And, and it still is. It's, you know, what's interesting now is that when I listen to music it's much more of an engagement. I feel like I'm in conversation with the music in a way and of course I understand a lot of the records I was listening to then, understand them better now, um lyrically. But um I was but for me it was always this escape, this sense of solace. And I was looking for mirrors looking for music to be a mirror so I can look and find something. Who am I in this stuff? But um for the most part it was escape and solace. But um and also to the I was wanting to um speak on the point of the racism, another thing there and growing up, I didn't encounter as much of that, um, because we grew up, I mean, we were in neighborhoods that were, um, especially when we left the projects that were predominantly white, but they, white folks kind of stayed to themselves, we stayed to our fellows, there wasn't any tension, occasionally we would speak to each other and, you know, maybe, you know, play in the yard or something, but it was no big deal, <laughs> we didn't talk to each other, it wasn't just tension. And um, and I grew up. My my father was um, something very much of a nationalist. You know, my parents were coming of age during the whole Black Arts Movement and you know Black Power Movement, and my father really clung to that stuff. And so um, he would most of them were slogans, of course, but you know he would always say, "Black is where it's at," and there's nothing wrong with you being black. So I absorbed that, and I didn't feel that there was anything wrong per se, and I didn't have a problem with who I was, and, and racially, of course, as I started, as I got older and read more stuff and read more history, um, you know, I got my own understanding of, you know, social political infrastructures that were racist and, you know, that marginalized and disenfranchised people. But as a kid, you know, you don't not, I don't understand that what I understood that there was nothing wrong with me because I was black, that mm-hmm. I understood. So I didn't have that racial self-loathing thing that so many of my peers had.
5: Yeah, there's a there's a lot of we can add to that. There's nothing wrong with you being, you know, black and not, nothing wrong with you being gay. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I only have a couple minutes left, which I'm sad because I re- literally could sit here and ask you questions about your book uh, all day long. Um, so <laughs> for those who are tuning in, you're interested. Pick up a copy of Soul Serenade, Rhythm Blues and Coming of Age Through Vinyl by Rashad Allison. Rashad, you know, the music industry has changed. Um I love the fact that you know, because you had such a sense of identity and connection with, with music you grew up in, uh, grew up with that you kind of hardly ever strayed away from that, even comparing yourself to those who got into the Dr. Dre's and Snoop Dogg's, you know, during the 90s. But where we're at musically, uh, I feel like the change is so drastic that, it, the, the, you know, the lyrics and everything, um, it's really hard to connect with music these days, but maybe I'm just being negative. What are your thoughts?
0: You know, it's 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 harder because things are so fragmented. Um, I think, you know, because people listen to music and artists in their own little closet fan base. You know, if, when I was coming up, um, you know, I just sound so old or when I was coming up, but it's true. Like in the 80s, <laughs> the early 80s, there was still this communal aspect of music. For instance, Michael Jackson was the biggest pop star in the 1980s. There was no escape him. And literally, you couldn't because um, he was with label CBS. That was the largest. Record coming in the world. They promoted him, you know, ad nauseum. He was, you know, on MTV. Record, I mean, radio stations weren't as, they were mostly segregated, actually, in the 80s because you had the pop stations, you had the black stations, and there was music you heard on urban stations that you weren't going to hear on pop. It hadn't been that way in the the previous decade, but in the 80s, things started segregating themselves. But Michael Jackson was, you heard him on, I mean, on pop, rock, you know, with Billie Jean. um, or B, if you heard that on Rockface, you heard him on Quiet Storm. You know, there were cuts all over the thriller. And so there was... And then, of course, people listened to Casey some, so you heard that, and you heard music everywhere. And there was still a sort of a shared community with music. It was it was limited in how you even got it. You either recorded stuff off of the, uh, the radio with your cassette, um, you shared records, you know, so it wasn't file sharing, you know, you didn't have the internet, so you listened to whatever was on the radio. And people... Especially in the projects that we grew up, that were in the summertime, you heard music all the time. People literally pulled their radio their speakers out on the, on the front porches and bled music all day long. And so that was the shared experience of you know while we're playing games outside, if someone has a boombox, um, we're all listening to the same stuff. It's not like that anymore, and and I think that's affected the way music has changed too. It's, it's written differently. You know, you have to engage people. In the first thirty seconds, as opposed to having a minute long intro <laughs> before a song really you know blossoms mm-hmm. and um I think of people's attention spans and their expectations of the music has changed so um at, but on the same at the same token that it's it's so fragmented and so so much of it it's daunting to think about all the music that, that people have access to but because you can easily get it, whether it's you know spotify wherever you know digital means you're you can. Educate yourself and open up your your own mind to all different types of music that I probably wouldn't have been able to do in 1983. It had to be whoever had that song or what was on the radio.
5: Rashad, thank you so much for joining us here today, and uh, thank you for this beautiful book.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me here.
5: Pick up a copy of Soul Serenade today, Rhythm, Blues, and uh, Coming of Age Through Vinyl. I'm sorry, I'm going to say that again. Pick up a copy of Soul Serenade, Rhythm, Blues, and Coming of Age Through Vinyl by Rashad Allison. Don't go away. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. It's Michelle Miel. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Our guest today is Professor Brian Edwards, who teaches English, Middle East studies and literature at Northwestern University. He's also the author of After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. And he's here to discuss a couple articles uh, of his that have been featured on Salon.com and both discussing Trump and other American political figures who may have contributed to to Americans believing Muslims are the most horrible. Let's welcome Brian to the program. Brian, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Well, Michelle, thank you for having me.
5: So let's treat today's show as if we're we're all your Muslim students when you're teaching in Morocco, in, in which a student actually did ask you in the uh, one of the articles that you wrote, um, "Why Islam? Why why are they considered the worst?"
2: You know, I was in uh, Morocco in December again. I've been spending a lot of time in Morocco over the last twenty years. Did a, did my first book uh, based in Morocco, um, and so I when I'm in Morocco, I often go into classrooms and talk with students or give give a class, give a lecture. Uh, and I would happen to be in Morocco again in December when um, Trump's uh, statements uh, about keeping Muslims out of the United States were airing on media. Now, one of the ideas that we have or that, you know, we, we, we think is that expressions such as what Donald Trump was saying don't make it immediately around the world. There's an an old idea uh, that's sometimes referred to as Orientalism that there are two different worlds, that there's the Middle East and North Africa over there, uh, and the United States, you know, is in the contemporary period over here. But, of course, uh, anyone who spends time uh, in any other part of the world, uh, including the Middle East and North Africa, knows that that's not true. There's immediate connectivity. People young people, people of all ages, see through satellite TV, through the internet, through much of the same ways that we consume media here in the United States, uh, they're getting a lot of images and, and phrases and political rhetoric making their way to Morocco. So in this classroom in Fez, University of Fez, Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah University, uh, which is really the, one of the cultural centers of Morocco and of, of the greater Arab world, a young woman who is an undergraduate you know, asked me a question and said, why is it that Americans think that Muslims are the worst? Uh, why do they think that everything um, bad is coming out of the religion when, from our perspective, we see on our media that in the United States you have a very violent culture that mm-hmm. people walk around carrying guns, um, and it used to be that this was just rhetoric, but in fact we know this now to be the case that people walk around in many states in supermarkets and in university campuses carrying guns openly and are allowed to do so. And this young woman said, you know, to us, uh, it seems that the United States, in fact, is a very violent culture. We watch your movies, we play grand theft auto games and other (laughs) video games um, that are all very violent, but that are very popular around the world. Um, And from our perspective, in fact, you guys are the violent ones. Um, And yet, if you were watching the rhetoric of a lot of your politicians, you would think that we're always in the -the cross-the-board violence. When you would never see someone holding a gun uh, in a place like Morocco, it just doesn't happen. It's only the police or the military who would have guns legally uh, or at all. Um, And it seemed like a question that would be, commonsensical, uh, if you're coming from an American standpoint, because we have for so long uh, villainized or made Muslims or Arabs, not, of course, the same category. We can talk about the distinctions in a moment, if you like, um, as a sort of scapegoat uh, or a generalized kind of group that stands for all bad things in the world. Um, and as many people have pointed out, of course, this allows us to filter the news that we see in a particular way and to see um, the reality that's unfolding every day through a kind of filter that helps us to figure out, helps us as consumers of media in the United States to make certain kinds of decisions. Um, you, know, re- I don't, you know, to be a little bit abstract for a moment, reality is always complicated. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that we witness every day mm-hmm. as we walk through a city or a town, wherever you live, and we kind of categorize the knowledge that there were these kind of random facts and, and observations into categories and narratives and ongoing narratives that help us to explain that messy reality. It's not a new observation. It's been observed for decades and decades in the United States. Um, and it's uh, now it seems that into the last uh, several decades, but we can talk about different changes in the story that Muslims and Arabs have been the latest in a series of scapegoats in the United States. Um, And they have not always been Muslims. It has been African-Americans in the past, Asians, Asian-Americans during World War II period. Um, You can go all the way back to the scholars, go back all the way to the Salem witch trials when young women uh, were, you know, accused of being witches for, uh, and, and, you know, uh, killed by the state for that. Um, so there's a there's a long tradition in the United States that we can you know point to and try to understand. Not uh, you know, and that's the goal here to try to understand that. So this young woman, I had to say to this young woman, well, I mean it was it was not an innocent question. Of course, she she knew that she was an educated um, young woman, um, and she but she really was asking from a very open and um, an open place and a really you know just the frustration that young people that the, my students and the students here in the United States feel too about the world that they've uh, inherited
5: So it's safe to say this you know the internet it, the tool itself uh, that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing for us to stay connected and to get our news fast um, or information or education I think even for yourself as a professor I mean the internet's done a, a great thing for us it's it's the um, it's the news. It's the people who are creating the content who are saying the things that's that's the bad part. Um, and when you look at the American media uh, systems or the big corporations um, who have some control over this, I, I would say that they are, they are to blame for, for a lot of this. Or, or maybe you disagree. Maybe, maybe it's, it's uh, the, the politicians like Donald Trump. Or who is to blame?
2: Well, it's a really interesting question, Michelle. Um, of course. Uh, media allow and the ability for voices uh, to be heard is a a good thing. Um, And I think that one of the great achievements of the Internet and what I call the digital age that we're living within is that people with much less access to power or much less access to major media outlets can now find a voice and express themselves. Um, And that has been changing as we know every day it becomes more possible to to reach an audience um outside certain kind of power structures or corporate structures it used to be you know just not too long ago that if you were living in a certain place or um, you just couldn't express yourself without going to the local newspaper the local radio station which had a limited reach or try to find a way into the really powerful main outlets back when there was only a few television channels and only a few major newspapers and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and so I do believe absolutely that the, the fact that the Internet has democratized, let's say, or given access to a much larger range of people is a good thing. Of course, what's interesting about that is that at the same time, you know, you can't, as, as with any kind of free speech, you can't control what that means. And one shouldn't expect that, that we could. Um, and we're now kind of in an interesting second, you know, l- l- looking at the Internet, there was first the arrival of the Internet and the amazing thing, I'm sure we remember, the amazing, what we remember because no matter how old one is, it's changing every day. Mm-hmm. You know, even kids in school today see that, if they think about what they could do last year, it seems like ancient history. It's a very rapid development of the technology, of course. Um, and so you had the Internet, and then, you know, in the uh, in the mid-2000s, Uh, you had what has been referred to as Web 2.0. It wasn't a new Internet that unraveled or was released, but all of a sudden the Internet started to become more interactive as a space. People could put up videos. People could leave comments. They could uh, upload things themselves. And that really changed the Internet and changed the way in which voices uh, might be heard had some fantastic and wonderful examples of, of what that might allow to happen. Um, frequently, we point to um, the, what's been called the Arab Spring, not a term that Middle East experts usually use, the Arab uprisings, um, partially because it happens in the winter, <laughs> um, partially nice. because uh, it was a little bit deceptive as a term. In any case, it, there you know, the ability for, so, of young Egyptians and Tunisians to use social networking media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, to organize and, and bring down a longtime uh, autocratic dip- dictator was remarkable. I'm not saying that everything um, I have said in print and in the new book, I say this too, Facebook and Twitter didn't create the Arab Spring. There was a lot, they, but they were a tool that was one of the tools that young um, resistors uh, in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere were able to use, and that without which they might not have been able to organize as quickly or as effectively as they did. So we right. have to... Kind of balance that, you know. Um, But also, of course, the internet. One should always remember that the internet is uh, um, and social networking is a tool for not such good things happening. ISIS is very sophisticated in its use of the internet um, as recruiting kind of locations and has very savvy uh, media people who know how to um, use some of the same uh, mechanisms to attract uh, recruits to to their cause, which is not something generally people are very supportive of outside um, that world, especially in the Middle East, very critical of that. Um, And what we are seeing here in the United States, and this gets us to Trump, is that, you know, I mean, haven't haven't you noticed that that what we've now called trolling or trolls? Right. um, There's a (laughs) lot of just negative hate speech that Mm -hmm. seems to proliferate on the Internet in a way that it's hard to know, it's hard to study, seems out of sync with um the kind of what would you say the the number of people expressing it right, right. Want,
5: yeah it seems disingenuine and uh i think i think it's a whole lot easier for you to just be someone else and be even more hateful just just some, for some i think it's even like just it's you know it's a it's thrilling um it's not even it might not even be what you you think or you feel it's not even your politics but but to, to say some hurtful things might just be thrilling for you uh, behind a computer.
2: It's really a fascinating and disturbing development um, that, the, that this version of what we're still calling Web 2.0 mm-hmm. has allowed such proliferation of negativity. And I know this is someone who's published uh, articles online, you know, not, not just these new salon pieces, which of course released a huge amount of hate speech um, against not only know, me, the author, um, but also the people, the young people that I was writing about the very, this young innocent woman, um, who asked this question about the violence, um, uh, mm-hmm. not have been a, uh, a, a, you know, more well-meaning student. And some of the speech that was directed at her was not only just kind of factually wrong, you know, but was, was violently negative and hateful. Right. right. Um,
4: Right We we're, we're,
2: you know, and there's something about the I mean this is the thing. we have to say that true democracy or pure, you know and true free speech um, allows for a lot of very distasteful uh, expressions of that sure. speech. Now that's not to say it should be shut down. of course, we're supportive of free speech, but you have to also at the same time realize that it is not a pure good um, in the sense that it allows for this aggressive kind of hatefulness.
5: Exactly. Exactly, Brian. We're we're gonna take a quick break right here, but when we come back, I wanna I wanna touch on the American Century and what that means. So stick around, okay? The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
1: And now back to the Michelle Miao show.
5: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our guest today is Professor Ed, uh, Brian Edwards, who teaches English Middle East Studies and Literature at Northwestern University. And he's also the author of After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. And uh, we've been talking about uh, why Islam, why why Americans might think that Muslims are the worst. And so, uh, you know, it doesn't help when you have people like Donald Trump um, saying <laughs> things like... Like, uh, you know, we should should not allow uh, Muslims into our country. Um, but Brian, I, I wanted to, to touch on something that you mentioned in your article uh, called American Century, in which you cite from a, an essay uh, written by Henry Luce. What What is the American Century? What's that idea?
2: Okay, so the, the American Century is a phrase that gets used a lot um, in different ways, of course. Henry Luce, who was the publishing mogul, the founder of... Time and Life, Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and Fortune, uh, had a huge publishing empire through the 20th century. And in 1941, February, 10 months before the United States enters World War II, he publishes his, his probably his most influential essay called The American Century. At the time, he actually was, had been raised outside the United States in China, the child of missionary parents. Um, but now here he was as this very powerful publisher, and he was responding to those in the United States who were reluctant to get into World War II, um, isolationists, and, and um, basically he, was, he makes an argument that the United States should get into World War II and that we were already an international power. Um, what's remarkable from our day and age is how little Ameri- many, most Americans felt that they were the global superpower back in 1941 something that would really come after World War II when American attitudes towards kind of being a world leader changed um, for regular Americans. At this point, France and Britain were considered, you know, these great uh, empires and so on by many Americans. And here was Luce saying that, look, get get over it. America's an international power. And his examples were uh, that American culture, uh, which he... he he, quote, he said jazz, Hollywood movies, American slang, American machines and products were the only things that every community in the world recognized in common. Um, now, he was criticized at the time uh, from both the left and from the right for suggesting that it was an American century. And of course, I myself feel very uncomfortable, as do many uh, on, the, on a more progressive side, in suggesting that the, that the world was in an American century and that, the, you know, should look to the United States as it's, uh, its kind of a, you know, Greenwich Mean Time, so to speak, mm-hmm. of a whole entire century. Um, what's, what was influential, nonetheless, even though he was criticized from both left and right, as I mentioned, was the idea that American culture uh, itself had an international reach and uh, had reached people around the world the State Department, the United States State Department, um, took this as a kind of a truism um, and started to uh, send around cultural tours, jazz, what they call the jazz ambassadors. You, know, you had Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, and other jazz musicians playing around the world, uh, paid for by the U.S. State Department, the funding of abstract expressionist painting exhibits, you know, uh, American writers sent to Latin America and through the... Middle East and countries that might go towards the Soviets, because that was, and the idea that the popularity of American culture might be a tool for the, for the government itself, you know, in during the Cold War, in the Soviet, you know, the struggle against the Soviet communist model was something that was very influential. So the American century as a phrase, the way I'm using it, and the way I think it's the, the more accurate uh, usage of it, is this idea that American culture has some interesting relationship to us as a, as a government and as a for as a as a, uh, as a nation uh, in the international sphere now what happened during the Cold War I mean you had a lot not only the funding of these various cultural tours but the building of, of what they were called the America houses or libraries um, in a variety of ways Fulbright program um, you could in a certain way include the Peace Corps which is a later um, example of um, the, the, you know, the kind of bringing American culture out into the world via young people. And many of these projects, by the way, I think were, were both were good um, mm-hmm. and had led to very good uh, benefits in, in putting people into contact with each other, which is always a good thing because from outside, as the United States became more and more powerful during the Cold War as a, as a state, um, you know, putting actual regular Americans in contact with actual pe- real people around the world tended to be a good thing, because the United States from afar can look very awesome and powerful um, to people, and, you know, as regular, you know, as Americans travel through the world, often, you know, they're asked questions that surprise them, and they became kind of individual ambassadors in an interesting sort of way. Um, that apparatus, the the State Department's apparatus for, for this um, kind of cultural, what would later be called cultural diplomacy, um, starts to come apart in the late 1990s, because the Cold War was supposedly over, we thought we'd won the Cold War, and there was less um, there was less uh, powerful supporters for keeping the USIA in power. Uh, and meanwhile, the Republicans were arguing that it was kind of a waste of money, it could be cut back, and it really, a lot of these cultural programs were, of course, peopled by cultural people, or young people on the Peace Corps, or... Um, maybe the Peace Corps is independent of, the, of this in a certain way, but that you couldn't really control jazz musicians or painters. A lot of the, the politics, a lot of the artists were very leftist, of course. And some people in the Republican Party didn't like that. In any place, case, it starts to be taken apart in the late 90s because it doesn't seem like a moment when it matters anymore. After September 11, 2001, when so many people are uh, freaking out to be you know, blunt about, about what's going on in the world, there are many people who argued that we should bring back this Cold War cultural diplomacy in places like the New York Times, um, within the State Department, too. And so through the Bush and uh, Obama administrations, both,
3: mm-hmm. uh, of
2: the return of um, a lot of these cultural programs. I quote in the Salon, the essay in Salon that was published on Sunday, you know, Hillary Clinton talking about hip-hop initiatives uh, that looked a lot like the jazz tours of the 1950s, uh, that that this was a tool she said, you know, there's a quote from Hillary Clinton hip-hop is America I think we have to use every tool at our disposal About why the State Department should be funding hip-hop tours now. It's interesting to me about that quote Of course hip-hop is America. No no dis- disagreement there but the idea that the state would understand culture as a tool to help influence hearts and minds um, is quite interesting and so one of the things that I know and I've been charting as I researched this new book after the American century is that American culture remains incredibly popular throughout the world, um, and it's including and especially in the Middle East and North Africa, even while U.S. politics have been increasingly unpopular in the Middle East region, um, even while a critique of the U.S. as sort of an empire or an occupying force has been levied in Arab countries and in countries uh, non-Arab countries in the Middle East, like mm-hmm. Iran.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: nonetheless, you will find a huge presence of American popular culture, whether it's hip-hop music, of course, Hollywood movies, but all sorts of other newer versions of American culture, whether it's video games um, or social networking right. sites or YouTube. Right. Young people, and not, not only young people, but especially young people, in the Middle East and North Africa recognize that the origins of, of many of these cultural products are the United States and have no problem under you know using them consuming them while uh, you know that does not make them supportive of the United States as a political con- uh, entity that to me is really fascinating I mentioned before the Isis social networking uh, strategy we had a uh, we hosted a lecture here where a young, where a young scholar was showing a room of, of uh, students and faculty and people in this community here in just north of mm-hmm. Chicago, um, ISIS's cat videos, Twitter <laughs> feeds, and we yeah. were kind of blown away, right. at the savvy of what, yeah. you know, the recruiters were, were doing there.
3: Brand, so Brand there,
2: that's, I, yeah.
5: I, I have one uh, last question for you, and, and unfortunately we run out of time. And like I said in my email, I mean, you know, I know that your publicist had sent me the book. I wanted I want to dive into that book and have you back and, and have a, a long, lengthier discussion um, about your book. But uh, my last question for you this morning, you know, has to do with this idea that people uh, here in this country and 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 probably in foreign countries in which you know the. Democracy in America may be under threat. It's interesting because you have some politicians here in this country who may say that, uh, you know, it's the gay and the lesbians who are uh, a threat to American democracy. But what are your thoughts? Um, who's more of a threat? You know, are they these uh, conservative Republican um, uh, political figures, or or is it the internet, or well, what? What's the threat to American democracy?
2: Well, look, there's always been, you know, in American political history, there's always been this tension between, and it goes back to the early, you know, founding, uh, the founders of the Constitution, between total and full democ- democracy of the masses and a more restricted sense that we have written into our Constitution um, that kind of puts a filter between, between that. What's fascinating, of course, from a historical, you know, looking at the moment we're in right now, is how the internet, as what started as just another kind of tool or form of entertainment, which it is um, as well, has completely changed um, the you know our understanding of what it means to have democratic range of voices out there. So that you know everything is very immediate and rapid. And as you said at, in the beginning of the segment, um, you know, like you could be if you're watching the State of the Union, which I was doing, you might also be watching it on Twitter and what people were saying about it at the same time. I was also doing, um, I noticed that people in the room that the, the, Obama was addressing were apparently writing Twitters or looking at their cell phones. I don't know what they were doing. You know, we thought they were kind of embarrassed. But then it looked like some of them were putting things on Twitter while the president spoke. So to see that in that old tradition of the State of the Union, to see members of, uh, of Congress writing tweets or whatever they were doing on their, on their tablets um, demonstrates that even in our oldest institutions, things have changed pretty directly. Now, I don't think that that you know is a—it's a challenge um, to, to our democracy, and we've always struggled with our. What I you know to go back to something we said earlier with our unfortunate tradition of scapegoating different groups at different times, as you said, gays and lesbians, um, you know. Um, uh, Muslims, Asians, and Asian Americans mm-hmm. during the 40s, and it goes you know, African Americans, and it goes it goes back. We don't even talk about the Native peoples of the United States very much in these conversations, but they certainly would have something to say about threats to, um, you know, to to, the, to talking about scapego- scapegoating. Um, so um, we need to, you know, we're we're rapidly adjusting to this new climate, um, and part of the point of the salon articles and the point of the book. I talk about the ends of U.S. culture in the Middle East. It's not to say that U.S. culture has ended. There has been some discussion about that, but that U.S. culture ends up in so many places, and is, so much is done with it in ways that we didn't recognize or didn't think would happen.
1: Um, mm-hmm. And that,
2: to me, and this when you know this comes out much more in the book, the nuance of a book, um, to look at what's happening in the new Egyptian um, cultural scene, or in Iran, or in Moroccan uses of Facebook, I write about the first openly gay Moroccan novelist in that book um, and what YouTube did to the discussion of sexuality and homosexuality in Morocco, um, which is a fascinating story to tell, maybe for another show. Yes. (laughs) Um, I've got you interested, right?
5: Yes, yes, um, yes. I can't wait for the book to arrive in my my hands.
2: Right. So, you know, you just see that in this this digital age, um, part of what I'm trying to do is describe a period, what I'm calling after the American century. When culture moves so immediately and, and ends up and ends up in so many different places,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and young people, who I'm always, I'm an optimist in the end, despite all the negative, sad, terrible things right. we're talking about, <laughs> I remain optimistic that young people, creative people, um, in a variety of communities in the U.S. and right. around the world, will help us figure out um, and you know, manage the downside that's come with all of these liberating technologies and possibilities.
5: I agree. I agree. I and, agree. And, and Donald Trump is getting older. And, uh, you know, <laughs> um, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to our next session. And, uh, and I look forward to the book. So thanks for spending some time with us.
2: Michelle, thanks so much. I'll be out in San Francisco and Berkeley uh, in the spring to give a couple lectures at Berkeley. And um, I look forward to talking to you uh, further, maybe around then.
5: Yes, that sounds perfect. You should get your hands on uh, Brian's book and that is titled After the American Century: The Ends of the US Culture in the Middle East. It's available, uh, I'm sure anywhere you can get it, uh, a digital copy or at a book a bookstore. <laughs>
2: Tune into the Michelle Mia show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.